Welcome into Football and Grits, your SEC-centric podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Aaron Suttles, the Alabama beat writer here for The Athletic, and I'm your host for the Tuesday Football and Grits podcast. And you know what that means. That means it is the subscriber portion of the podcast, meaning you guys send in the questions, and I do my best to answer them. And you guys have so many great questions, I try to get to as many as I can, but uh, time limiting being what it is, uh, I, I try to pick out the best cross section I can get. I try not to focus on any one particular program more than the other. And so that's where we are. Before we get started, as always, I want to ask you to go subscribe, rate, and review Football and Grips to help us get the podcast out to new listeners. Uh, again, you guys send in so many great questions. The more people we have listening, the more questions we can get in here, and the more enjoyable we can make this. So, again, a subscribe, rate, and review football and grits. Getting into it today, we'll start with Jonathan P. who asks, what's your favorite early season overreaction? Mine is that the SEC wasn't ready for the air raid offense, which is particularly hilarious given that take also ignores how mummy and where that offense got its roots. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise we could really do every year at the beginning of the year. And, and this year – it's probably accentuated a little bit. So it's highlighted, exaggerated somewhat because of the way college football played out this year, because we're getting an sec only, we're getting conference only scheduling. And so I think that probably highlights the overreactions a little bit and the seasons being condensed. Maybe it just feels bigger this year, but you're right. There are always overreactions and it happens every year. We see it in polls. We see it in Heisman hype. We see it all over the place. But you're right. When Mississippi State started dropping dimes on LSU in week one and and KJ Costello's out here throwing for what seems like a 1,000 yards, that was the story. That was the defending national champions, LSU. That was Mike Leach. We were always sort of curious, right? We always have these conversations with our friends at the bar, wherever, about what happens if this – and you know, Tennessee's flirtation with Mike Leach uh, a few years earlier had brought this conversation to the forefront of how Mike Leach would fare if he got t- to compete in the SEC, how the SEC would stack up against him. And then he comes in week one with a transfer quarterback, and all of a sudden, man, they just they just, they just beat down the, the, the defending national champs. And, and they did it in a fun style of play. I mean, a lot of passing yards. That's that's very appealing to the eyes, and so that we 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 saw that, and we started sort of extrapolating that out about what that would look like. Well, Mississippi State has fell back to earth since that time, right? They haven't won a game since they're one and three on the season. Um, they are next to last in the SEC in scoring offense. They average eighteen point five points a game, which is just boggles the mind given what offenses are doing nowadays. Uh, they're eighth overall in total offense. Now, in, in passing offense, they are at near the top of the conference. They're second. I think it's the team that they're behind that would shock most people if you'd have told them this five years ago. But Alabama's the number one passing offense 
in the SEC. But that was certainly one of the overreactions that we had. And, and KJ Costello, you know, sort of looped in with that about you know them taking over the SEC. I also think, to a certain extent, you know, we started asking questions, and and, and maybe this hasn't been an overreaction, but. The, the, you know, we watched Alabama Old Miss. We start seeing the way Florida's throwing the football around. We were watching Mississippi State, and we started asking ourselves, has the SEC become the Big 12? I think that's a little bit of an overreaction. We're not going to completely qualify that as a big overreaction to this point because it does look different, the SEC. Um, in, in traditional programs that have played great defense, Alabama, LSU, suddenly aren't playing great defense. But there are other great defenses in the league. right? I mean, Arkansas is playing pretty good defense with – uh, with, with what they have, so, but that's a that particular one. I don't know how big of an overreaction that is about the SEC, quote unquote, becoming the Big Twelve. But it it sort of feels like one that we haven't let play out enough. We don't have a large enough sample size, I don't think, to qualify that. Another one for me, and it's hard to remember now, given the last three weeks that we've seen them. But go back three weeks, and Tennessee starts two and zero, right, and. And not that anyone thought that Tennessee particularly was going to win the SEC East, but we thought we we sort of convinced ourselves that Tennessee might be one of these teams that's a thorn in the side that could knock you off. You know, they they win those two games, and suddenly they got I think I think it was one of the longest winning streaks in the country. I think they had they had an eight game winning streak. It certainly was the longest winning streak in the SEC after uh, LSU went down the first week of the season. They they. You know they win the first two games. They're eight wing eight game winning streak. They're touting that, and they should because that's a program's job is to um is to get itself and market itself that way as attractive as possibly. But, but Tennessee's two and zero. They've won eight straight games, and we start asking ourselves: Could this? You know, if things fell right for Tennessee. Could they be one of those wild card teams? Right. Well, the last three weeks have certainly answered that question because they've been hammered the last three weeks you you start talking about uh blowouts at the hands of georgia um which on it on on its face isn't that bad but you want to think in year three that you'd be more competitive but it's still georgia and you know you lose there by 23 points um 44 to 21 then the next week i think is really when really things started going downhill and we'll talk a little bit about Tennessee in another question uh, but they got blown out by by Kentucky and then this last week they get blown out by Alabama so that, that's another overreaction if you can remember not that anyone was hyping Tennessee as a top five team just we we they're sitting two and oh they got an eight game winning streak and we start asking ourselves could this be a dark horse team well clearly the answer is no. Um, what about you guys? Let us know your uh, biggest overreactions to the SEC season so far. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Adam C. weighs in. Do you think SEC fan bases overall are down on their teams more this year than others? It seems so to me. I wonder if the all-SEC schedule is the chief culprit for low fan morale across the board, aside from Alabama. 
I haven't studied schedules, but I'd imagine the original schedule would have most SEC teams with two more wins right now. Well, certainly when you start thinking about some of the out-of-conference games that would have been scheduled, SEC overall would have had more wins, no doubt about it. Um, because not everyone is scheduling Power 5 non-conference opponents. In, in fact, you get four of those uh, out-of-conference games a year, and some teams, not all, but some teams are padding those all four with winnable games. Um, generally, the, the good teams, the, the elite teams at the top of the conference, are scheduling one really good uh, Power 5 non-conference opponent and then sort of filling in the other three from there. Where, well, those four, there's four games are gone, right? You're, you're playing the All-SEC schedule, so you're seeing the warts of your team a little earlier this year than you normally would through four or five games. Those warts are more easily recognizable because there's no – there's no other opponent that can make you look better than you actually are, um, for, for lack of a better word. Um, I, I also think, in answering Adam's question, I, I, I sort of think just the overall feel of 2020 has sort of leaked its way into our mind frame. You know, you, you see these jokes all the time of um, 2020 make it stop. We sort of blame it on the year as if at the end of the year when the calendar flips from December to January – 2021 that our same problems aren't going to follow us it's sort of amusing that way that we assign it to a year on a calendar but it's sort of in our mindset right this has been a it's been a tough year for a lot of people Uh, from the coronavirus to the way the economy and people losing their jobs because of their reaction to the coronavirus i mean there's a lot of different reasons why we'd be negative and that 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 sort of thought process would have seeped its way into our way of thinking but i think it has for a little bit and i think it's just sort of Everything seems to be the worst this year, right? I mean, whether it's, you know, not having sports for a long time, or whatever reason, it just sort of feels like everything we've uh, assigned, everything's the worst this year. And I, I think that that mind frame, that mindset has sort of uh, has sort of bled over into to the question. And I do think teams are really down on it. I think there's a variety of reasons. As you mentioned in your question, Adam, I think it's because, you know, partly if you're tough on your team or you're disappointing your team, it's because what I just mentioned, the fact that you're seeing the warts of your team a lot earlier this year. There's there's less of those pad, padding games between conference games that can sort of give you maybe false hope or, or you know, you start thinking your team maybe is can achieve more than, than really it's capable of, of, of achieving, if that makes any sense. I think there's a lot of that. And, I mean, I if you'd ask me at the beginning of the season, will Alabama be the only team that's unbeaten halfway through the season, I, I, I probably said no. I would have thought at least another team, you know, whether it would be Florida. Um, we knew it wouldn't – we knew because of the way the schedule set up that Alabama or Georgia were going to have a loss in the first half of the season it's because they played each other. But I would have thought there would be at least one more team that would be unbeaten at this point, and and we just haven't seen it. Obviously, it's not played out that way. A lot of football left to play. And going back to the overreaction, because there's a lot of football left to play, um, we might change our opinions on some teams. Right, The last time we saw Florida didn't go their way, but we haven't seen Florida in a few weeks. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll find out what they are. LSU had a nice bounce back win and, and certainly look good offensively so they still got questions on defense but you know so it's still really early and it's so weird you know trying to make these determining 
you know, really broad opinions on these teams when in actuality it's just it's been a it's just been a weird year and and because of the all conference schedule it's it's a little tougher to sort of handicap the conference from top to bottom. Eric J asked, I told you we'd get back to Tennessee. Tennessee has been through several coaches trying to climb its way back to the glory years when Philip Fulmer was the coach. It appears that Pruitt has the team leaning in the right directions, but blowout loss after blowout loss to the big three starts to make everyone wonder, does Tennessee stick with Pruitt and fans just need to accept that we're a second-tier program in the SEC now, or is there some magic hire out there that brings them back? Tennessee's a tough one because they, man, they have such a rich history. And it is not, I mean, it is now when you start looking at the, the days pass by, it is a long time ago, but it is not that long ago. Tennessee won a national championship. They were, they were BCS champions. So, so you, know, you only got to go back one methodology of how college football determined its national champion to, to find an era in which Tennessee, you know, com- competed and was elite. And that was in the BCS. Now I think they were the first BCS champion uh, when, when college football adopted that in 1998, but you start looking at it and it's tough to, because Tennessee has such a proud history, such a rich tradition, their fan base expects a lot. Um, fan bases that have, have seen their program achieve at a high level. And, and I've seen this here covering Alabama. They don't, it doesn't sit. No, listen, no one likes losing. No programs fans sit there and like to lose, but it's, it's more palatable at other places, right? Like if you're a Northwestern fan and no offense to any Northwestern fans out there, but if you're a Northwestern fan, losing a little bit sort of is built into the DNA of your fandom of your program. It doesn't, it doesn't hit the same as if LSU or, or Alabama or Auburn start losing a lot. It's just it's not the same. That's why you see Nebraska's having such a difficult fan base, such a difficult time in accepting where that program is right now. I think that's where Tennessee is, and I think Nebraska is an apt comparison to Tennessee. Tennessee last won ten games in a single season in two thousand seven. That's a long time ago. Um, it just is, and they've, as you mentioned, Eric, they've they've been through quite a few coaches. Um, but here's the thing: I'm never going to write off a, a program that's achieved at the highest level, that cares about football, that puts resources into football. I'm never going to write that program off because of what I just said. Because there are resources, because there are enough people with power and money that care. And you hit on it. All it takes is the right coach. Now there are some things that work against Tennessee. Right, that and everyone is quick to point out, and rightfully so. There's not a natural recruiting base. There's not a ton of talent in the state of Tennessee, at least not comparatively to the teams they're going to compete with for championships. Not at, not in Georgia, uh, Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, Florida. That's a hindrance to your program, but it can be overcome. But here's here's you start thinking about. I, I mentioned. Tennessee won that national championship in 1998. If you go back and look at that roster, a lot of that talent, a lot of the difference makers are from out of state of Tennessee. Again, no natural recruiting base. That's not really a shock. The problem is, if you're an elite program now, and even if you're not elite, but if you're teetering, you have aspirations to be elite, you put resources into your program, everyone's a national recruiter now. That's how Tennessee made its mark, man. They went everywhere to get talent. 
And other programs, especially in the SEC, weren't exactly doing that. Not, I'm not not to that's not to say that every program from its state had talent from its respective state. That's certainly you've always supplemented talent from other states. But I'm not just talking about bordering states now. I'm talking about Alabama is going everywhere to get. They've gone to Hawaii to get a quarterback. They got a quarterback that's a second string right now that's from California. Um, they're going everywhere to get players. And that's the case of everybody. Georgia's doing that. Um, Texas A&M's not really leaning just on the state of Texas. I mean, every program is doing that. And that's where Tennessee sort of thrived when it was at its best is they went and got talent for everyone. Now they're competing for more. And, and, and Clemson's a player now. A lot of the, the talent that maybe have, would have considered Tennessee before, Clemson's a power when they weren't a power before when Tennessee was elite. So the, the, the landscape has shifted somewhat in that regard. But the right hire makes everything go away. I mean, it, it, not everything, but it, it certainly reduces the mountains, the height of the mountains in front of you. It reduces the hurdles in front of you. So a lot of people sort of thought Alabama was a program that would never come back. You just put yourself back in the mid-2000s when Mike Shule is the, the only coach that anybody can convince to come to Alabama. You're dealing with probation, et cetera, et cetera. The SEC's changed. The landscape's shifted. All those things are things that Alabama faced. Now, Alabama produces more SEC-ready athletes than Tennessee. Um, it's a better recruiting area than Tennessee. But it was in a very similar position that they made the right hire. And they got Nick Saban, and then the rest is history. And so the right hire can change things. And I think a little bit you have to be patient. I know things are bad coming off three – blowout losses to Georgia, Kentucky, and Alabama, and, and things seem very dark if you're a Tennessee fan, but overreacting can set your program back. Now, if Urban Meyer tells you he wants to coach at, at Tennessee, that's a decision you got to think about, right? But it's got to be for the right hire. Hey, I'm a big Jeremy Pruitt fan. Uh, I, I like the way he recruits. What he is as a head coach right now is still undetermined, but he is, he is, that roster is in a better shape than it was when he took over. And I think the, the position everyone would point to that's still lacking is quarterback. And, you know, in today's college football, you have to have a quarterback um, because it's it's just very difficult if you don't. So that's sort of where I am with Tennessee. I'm never going to write them off because a program that has a history and because of that history has powerful people that want to put their own resources into that program, they're never out of it. I mean, they may go through some dark times, but they're never out of it in my mind unless they just suddenly they just suddenly decide I'm not going to invest my resources in this anymore. It's not worth it. That's when your program's in trouble. As long as Tennessee have very affluent benefactors that are willing to put their personal finances into the program, Tennessee's always going to have a chance. And, and I sort of think that's where it is. I know it's a tough time for you Tennessee fans, but, um, you know, you have to think. It's the nature of fandom, right? You have to think that better days are ahead. Adam M. asks, I know their offense is an absolute Ferrari, but what effect does losing Jalen Waddle have on Alabama? I could argue that he was pacing for the best Bama receiver even better than Judy, Ridley, Ruggs, etc. Maybe not now, but in the playoffs, SEC Championship, that is a serious weapon that the opposition no longer has to deal with. That's, my, that's, that's sort of my prerogative on him. I think Alabama is easier to defend today than they were last week. Because they had they had legitimate three deep threats. 
legitimate. There were three deep threats in Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, and we've seen what John Metchie's starting to do. Now there aren't three deep threats. There are two, and you throw in Slade Bolden and Javon Baker and some other guys that are getting opportunities, and they are, they are fine receivers. But Jalen Waddle, in my estimation, was the most exciting player in college football. Now I'm certainly biased because I see him week in and week out, but he was exciting. And losing him, while it may not matter in the other five games coming up in the regular season, at some point you're going to miss having one of the most explosive players in college football not on the field. There's no way that you can't. Nick Saban said it. We can put a body out there, and we can even be efficient with those bodies. We can. You saw what Slade Bolden did when he came in in Tennessee, right? I mean, he had a good game. But it wasn't Jalen Waddle. Nick Saban said it's like losing Allen Iverson. It's like losing 30 points a night. You're not going to replace that. You're just not. And so I, I don't think I don't see a way it can affect Alabama. Now, does it does it affect their ability to win a national championship? I don't know. I still think they're really good on offense. I think what affects Alabama's ability to win a national championship more than that, and I thought this when Jalen Waddle was healthy, is the defense. Can you get enough stops? But now you're forced to ask the question. Are they good enough on offense without Jalen Wall? I still think they're really good. But I just think they're easier to defend now. Um, and, and that's where sort of I am with. Thanks again for a great load of questions. Hey, coming up on Football and Grits on Wednesday, David Ubbin and Josh Kendall take you inside the SEC East. I'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.